The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. Hey everybody, welcome once again to another edition of the Disability Law Show. Excellent to have you along for over the next, or well, close to the next hour anyway. Tamara Gopian is here, partner, Sam Firu, Tamarkin, LLP the most positively reviewed law firm in this country. Got all the answers. If you have questions, you can send some along anytime. By the way, you might uh, end up on the show. That would be help at disabilityrights.ca. Any other questions can be uh, sent to mydisabilityquestions.com. We read those on air as well. And the phone number anytime to reach Tamar, 1-855-821-5900. Okay, lots of questions and uh, emails to get through here tomorrow. But uh, what do you got off the hop, pal? Off the hop, a really mm-hmm. interesting email was uh, circulated in our group this week that I thought I would start our show off talking about. And, you know, John, this is very typical, by the way, with our team. You know, issues will come up. We will put our heads together and see if we can figure out a solution, if we can help certain individuals. And this one's a topic that we talk about occasionally, but I thought it was a good one to start off the show, and that's time limits. Insurance companies love to use time limits to exclude or bar or deny otherwise valid disability claims, which is why the time limits are so, so important. So Mm. let me describe the context in which I'm talking about. And is this, an individual reached out to us, explained to us that the initial denial of his disability claim was made back in May of 2020, which is, you know, two years ago now. And as we talk about on the show very regularly, your clock to sue or start a legal claim against the insurance company typically starts to run the moment that you are denied your disability benefits the first time. We use that as a guiding tool, John, because we don't want there to be any gray for individuals. We also don't want individuals to waste time or lose time and lose the opportunity to bring those legal rights and the right Right. to disability benefits forward in the context of a legal claim. But what this individual did was go to go down the road of appeals with the insurance company. And he was reaching out to us because it had taken the insurance company over a year. Yes, I said it over a year (laughs) to provide the denial on the appeal. And so that is what he had just received. And of course, asking the very valid question, look, if I just got the denial on the appeal, you know, how could it be that I could be potentially out of time to bring the legal claim? Right. Look, you know, I think that the, I'm going to talk about a couple of things, but I want our listeners to know it starts right away. Even this is my caveat, even though I'm going to tell you that there are ways that there could still be valid claims being brought bottom line is that two-year mark can be a very very tough one to dispute but there are exceptions and in fact i find that a lot of the more recent cases that have come out in ontario john about disability benefits have surrounded these time frames one being what we call the limitation period that two-year period of when the moment that you would have reasonably discovered that you have a legal right or a claim against the insurance company when was that moment And the other uh, case law that we see a lot about is whether or not your application was brought in time. So the late notice and proof arguments. And so we've seen a lot of law around that because as I said at the top of the show, if insurance companies can use a technical reason to decline your claim, 
then they don't even need to consider whether or not, in fact, you meet the test of total disability under the plan or the policy. And frankly, it makes it easier from their perspective to just deny the claim and just assume that either people will go away and not assert their rights or might not know the nuances around what the case law actually says in Ontario about issues like this. And so this brings me to a couple of cases that have come out in Ontario in the last number of years around limitation periods and late notice and proof. And some of the things that really come out of that, John, is that idea of did you understand that in fact you had a clear and unequivocal denial from the insurance company that your benefits were denied? If the answer to that is no, then there have been cases that have said, well, if it's not clear that you think that you have not been denied, if, for example, the appeal process was what you were offered without further guidance around the fact that, in fact, it's a no and it's a clear no, then their insurance companies have been slapped on the wrist a little bit by some Ontario courts and saying, hang on, it wasn't clear to an unsophisticated person. In other words, someone who doesn't understand the nuances of limitation period law, which is very technical and can therefore be forgiven by the courts for bringing forward their legal claim outside of that two-year window potentially or like i said on the late notice and proof outside the time frames that are set out in the disability policy about when you're to assert your legal rights or make an application for disability benefits so with this particular individual we've got to do a lot more analysis the call that i was talking about and our team has been putting our heads together together to look at what was communicated to him you know what's the state of the law specific to that because there's a it's very fact driven there's a lot of things that go into that question but you know the bottom line being that if you're not sure don't hesitate to contact a disability lawyer this is what we do day in and day out and in fact it's very interesting for us uh, disability nerds like myself to sort of figure out, look, is there an opportunity for us to help this person? Because that's really what we want to do. And if we can't, we can't. And we're very forthright and transparent about that, John. I'm not going to lead someone down a garden path that this is something we can help with. And at the end of the day, either the insurance company or the um, the courts are going to close that door on this individual. So look, we're in that process. But those timeframes are so, so important for all these reasons. And so you really do want to understand, look, what is it that the insurance company is saying to me? That is why getting the, the letter, the email, John, is saying, okay, yes or no, or this is the explanation of what we're saying to you about your disability benefits. That letter, that communication is so important. And you want to read it all the way through, not just the first part that says we're denying you. You want to actually understand What are they saying to you? And if you don't understand, you want to give us a call. Our consults are completely free. We'll take a look at it. We'll walk you through it. We'll give you your options. Unpack all the legal language that might be contained in one of these letters and then let you know, look, these are the timeframes that might be at play so that you're not losing your opportunity to actually advance a legal claim within the courts and getting what it's owed to you by way of disability benefits. It's interesting, though. It's, you know, when you talk about the time limits and you bring that uh, that appeal into it, I mean, unless those who have listened to this show and they're already wise to it, for a lot of people, they would think, oh, wow, that's something thrown at me by the insurance company. The buck stops here. I have no other solution or option or door to go through because I've been offered an appeal. And that runs into the time problem because you figure oh, it's, a, it's an appeal. It's, it's a court thing. It's, it's a legal thing. It's, you know, I better apply for this. And, and 
my due diligence is, is on my end, so that could get them into some hot water too, right? Like I said, unless they've heard the show before, then they're going to look at the appeal and scoff at it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because the appeal process is not something you're going to find in your disability policy. You're not going to find it anywhere, really. Right. It's something that's been conceived of by the insurance companies to essentially keep you in their process. And like this poor gentleman that I talked about who's reached out to our firm recently this week, you know, you're lulled into believing that that is the, the right path or the correct path or the path, as you said, John, that's legal, quote unquote. But, but it has no legality to it. It's just a function of something that the insurance companies have offered to try and allow them more time, frankly, and to, by virtue of doing that, run down that clock, that limitation period clock that I was talking about. And, you know, and I think that the challenge becomes how do they communicate that to individuals who, like I said, don't necessarily understand yeah. all the words, the language, what's being put in these denial letters to them. Uh, and there is a sense that, look, this appeal process must be the only thing I should be able to do. And that's not actually the case whatsoever. You can start your legal claim the moment that you receive that denial letter. In fact, sometimes it's pre preceded by a phone call denying you as well. In my mind, that also starts the clock potentially in terms of what your legal rights might be. And so you know, or for example, John, we talk about on the show, you know, the, the letters, the warning letters that people get a year before the claim is being cut off. By the way, we're going to cut you off at the change of definition. There's a change in the tests for you to qualify. So we're going to send you a letter a year in advance letting you know, by the way, that we think you're not going to qualify for benefits past that point. Well, if you don't get another letter after that, then could you, by virtue of that communication, say to the insurance company, well, you told me that my benefits were going to end at this time frame, so I asserted my legal claim. Yes, you can absolutely do all of those things. I'm simplifying it a little bit for our listeners because I think it can be a little overwhelming to think about, look, what is a year from now going to look like? By the same token, you want to make sure that you are informed. That's the key. And you're not necessarily going to get a full transparent advice from your case manager. That's not what they're going to do for you necessarily. They're going to issue their standard letter. They're going to say to you, look, this is what we're, we've decided to do. They may continue to adjudicate your claim. But once that decision is made, then the ball is in your court as claimant to make the choices that are best for you and your health in consultation with your doctors and your family about what you're going to do with your disability claim and how you're going to advance that with the insurance company. And the trouble becomes that when you're not sure, you are going to take the path that the insurance company is offering because you don't know that mm -hmm. other paths exist, like hiring a lawyer, like starting a disability claim, which, by the way, sometimes is more efficient at getting resolutions, John. We're much faster in dealing with these claims than it would be necessarily to give the insurance company the option to appeal and appeal again because most insurers will have two or three levels of appeal before they get to the point where they say, okay, we're done. We're not going to consider any more appeals. Well, how much time is that? Could it, could it be a year? Could it be a year and a half? Could it be two years? Now right. you're out of time to start the legal claim. And that's the trouble. And so this is why we encourage people to get advice early, talk to us, let's talk about those options. And then at least, you know, look, this is the way I'm going to go. And if you want to go down the road of an appeal, my goodness, please don't. But if you do, then you know that tomorrow and our team are here. We're available. We can talk to you about it once they've declined again, which is 
typically what they will do, and we can start the legal process at that point. And we're very, very efficient in getting resolutions, John. That's the thing. And, you know, I, I think that it's disappointing when people come too late. I don't want people to be too late. That's the theme. Please, please, don't wait. Best part about that last minute was the fact you referred to yourself in the third person, which is amazing. Keep that up. I want to hear that from now on. We'll take a uh, we'll take a short break. Tomorrow's got so much more to share with you, but you can contribute to the show anytime, right? Danica, I see your email. That is coming up in just a minute, but we got to take a break. So we'll do that and return. In the meantime, here's the number. Refer to it. Call tomorrow. Have a conversation. Won't cost you anything just to get some some clarity, right? one 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca. And any other questions, of course, mydisabilityquestions.com. Just getting warmed up. Lots more Disability Law Show is on the way. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. All right, thanks so much for hanging in there during the break. We are back. Disability Law Show. Tamar Ogilbian here answering all the questions. There's no one better you want to call and have that conversation with Believe me, will not cost you a thing. It'll relieve a lot of stress just to just to pick up that phone and uh, and make that call. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at disabilityrights.ca. That's generally the email we pull from for the show during the show, and uh, read some of them uh, back to you and hopefully get you some answers because often the ones we pick are uh, very wide in scope, so it affects a lot of people. These questions being asked, so they're pretty uh, pretty useful in that regard. You know, just before Danica, you said something in the first segment tomorrow. About about, you know, heading the insurance company off of the pass and, you know, don't wait. Call a disability lawyer like yourself and start a claim. Everybody, I know there's a lot of people, they shudder and they hear it and they go, well, that's, that's so expensive. I don't want to do that tomorrow. What's like, why would I call a lawyer right away? It's going to cost me tons yeah. of money. I'm going to lose my house, blah, blah, blah. That's not the case, right? No, no, yeah. no, not at all, John, because we work exclusively on contingency. And so I often find myself explaining what this means and I'm happy to, which is, we will only receive a fee if we're successful in recovering money on your behalf against the disability insurer, full stop. And, and then I get a follow-up question, John, inevitably, really, tomorrow, nothing more? And I'm, I'm doing it again. I'm referring myself to, to in the third person, but <laughs> oh, yes, nothing more. You're not going to pay. There's no upfront fees. There's nothing hidden in here. No retainers that yeah. have a fee involved. Nothing, 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 zero because we absorb that risk, we share that risk with the disability claimant because we know that they don't have a monthly benefit coming in, John. They don't have money to pay for a lawyer right now for the month or two or three perhaps where perhaps they were going down the road of an appeal as well. So this is why most disability lawyers, if not all of the ones that I know, are in the same format for individuals. And I think that it is an incredibly important part of what services we offer because it is an access to justice issue, if you ask me. In other words, how else is someone in a situation like this who has no income coming in because they were relying on the disability benefit, whose disability insurer has wrongfully or hastily declined their disability benefits, how is someone in a situation like that supposed to hire a lawyer on an hourly rate or some kind of upfront contingency for thousands of dollars that is not something that's going to work for most people who are in that situation. You know, I've got individuals and clients, John, who require like treatment in that. 
And so their health plans perhaps are, are ending or they can't afford to continue their extended health plan because they were relying on the LTD benefit for that as well, for example. So it's just a really, really tough situation to be in, which is why I encourage individuals to contact us, get the free advice. The consults are free. We'll talk to you as however many times is needed. And then you can then make those choices when you've ha- we've had a deeper dive about what it's going to mean involving us. And frankly, I think the greatest service we offer is to try and take that stress of dealing with the insurance company away. I don't want these individuals having to deal with these aggressive adjusters and appeals and more medical information, right? Like, let me do that for you. Let my team do that for you and support you in that way so that you can focus on your health. That is the number one thing. You want to focus on your health. You want to have the breathing room to figure out, look, what can I do? Where, what path do I need to take from a health perspective to get me back to work if that's where it's headed? Um, you know, and I think that individuals don't realize when they're listening to our shows or even perhaps contacting our firm, I don't know if they quite get that sense right away what it is that we offer in terms of those services. And so, you know, of course, I want to encourage people to know that we're here to help. And this is the main way that we do that is to allow individuals not to have to pay for every hour that we spend on these files. Because it it is quite a lot of work that I put into every individual client and claim, John, and I want to be able to do as much work as is required without being concerned about time either, right? If it's going to take me 30 hours, it's going to take me 30 hours, whatever that case might be. Um, And I think that it's best to do it that way so that I can best position the claim and the case against the insurance company and move that needle and with however much time is needed to review medical reports, for example, to have conversations with the insurance company. A lot of things go, go into initiating that legal claim and bringing it to a point of resolution. But as I said at the top of the show, you know, we've got a really, really good degree of success in doing that within, you know, sort of months sometimes of being retained. And I can tell you that the outside time frame of that sometimes is faster than going down the road of an appeal and an appeal and an appeal. That's all. And with that, we will move on to Danica. Danica's email says, hey, tomorrow my LTD adjuster is reviewing my claim now. Coming up to the two-year mark, he wants a copy of the report from my most recent visit to a specialist. I have a copy of the report and wondering if it's in my best interest to give the report to him directly or whether I should insist he make a formal request from my doctor. I know they will be able to get it from him either way, but not sure uh, if I give it, if that sets a precedent for them getting anything else without my knowledge. Uh, there's uh, They also want to speak with the doctor. Should I contact the doctor first? Thanks. Danica, really, really good questions. So there's a couple of things you've asked us here. And so the number one thing is if you've got a report in hand, absolutely you should share that report with the insurance company especially if it's helpful right if it's going to give the insurance company more information about what's happening from a health perspective and perhaps give some um, medical reasons for you know your limitations and your functional restrictions and all of the stuff that's important for the disability insurer then by all means yes my vote is full disclosure as much as you can provide information to the insurance company the better i do recognize though her hesitation and what she says to us john is that you know she's not sure if this is going to create a precedent so insurance companies will say to you quite routinely what while you're on claim with them that the onus or responsibility to demonstrate that you continue to be totally disabled lands on you as claimant 
And in fact, they will insist that you pay for the costs associated with getting the medical information that the insurance company needs to keep paying your benefit. So I've seen insurance companies back away a little bit from this approach, but that bottom line, that is what they will say. And there's some disability policies that actually include that in the policy itself that says any costs associated with medical information will be borne by the person who is asserting the disability claim. So the claimant, someone like Danica. So I'm not so much concerned about the precedent part of it, because I think that, you know, 99% of the time, the adjuster is going to rely on the claimant to direct who's part of their care and treatment and where records should come from in the first place. The other thing that I think is important to know, and we don't talk about this too, too much, John, is that the application materials that you sign, the forms that you actually submit to the insurance company to make your claim for disability, will include an authorization and a consent in there. The small print part, John, the part that nobody reads, that's yes. the part that I read. And it says that it gives the insurance company the right um, on your authorization and consent to request these medical records directly from your own doctors. Okay. So, you know, Danica is right. They can make those requests themselves directly from the doctors and so on. But, you know, if I'm sitting in Danica's shoes, I'd like to direct some of that information. I would like to see what the medical information says. I would like to better understand, you know, what information and opinions, for example, are being given to the insurance company about my ability to work or not work or what's happening with my health. And so by all means, you know, there's a couple of different ways of doing this, but uh, the bottom line is that you want to make sure that your doctors are being cooperative if the insurance company is writing out directly. And if not, and you have those records yourself, you should absolutely provide those records to the insurance company. So I have no hesitation about that. Here's the other part of it, though, that she asks us, John, and that yeah. is the insurance company wants to speak to her doctor. Okay, so I'm not sure if it's a different doctor than the specialist that she was referencing, but I'm starting to see what's called these doctor to doctor calls a little bit more in the claims files that I'm looking at. And I think it's because, frankly, we've had a lot of us lawyers uh, who do disability work, we're very critical of the insurance companies who don't actually talk to the treatment providers. They only what, what do they do usually like a paper review is what we talk about. They'll, you know, send the file over to some doctor and they'll pay that doctor a couple bucks to review the file on paper, never talk to Danica, never talk to her doctors, and they will render, you know, a two-liner two opinion that says she's not disabled and she can work. And so I'm seeing a little bit more this more active involvement in adjudicating these claims. Kudos to the insurance companies. Good. They should have been doing it a decade ago, but okay. Um, and now they're making more active efforts to actually contact the doctors um, that are involved in the actual care of the claimant. And so what I would say to Danica is, you know, I don't have a lot of hesitation about that either, provided your doctor is aware of the context in which this conversation is going to happen and the kinds of things that the doctor may be asked. So it's important for Danica to have a real discussion with her own doctor before the conversation between her doctor and the insurance company's doctor, so that there's a mutual understanding about what it is as to the current state of the claim. Um, you know, is there, for example, a change of definition review that's on, you know, on the horizon? If that's the case, the doctor should anticipate questions around, look, can Danica work at her own job or any job? I think it's important to have that discussion with your doctor. 
And and frankly, you know, if the doctor's not sure, I'm happy to speak to the doctor as well, John. I mean, you know, this isn't, we offer these free consults for everyone and anyone. So if you're a doctor out there and listening, and perhaps you've got a, a call coming up with an insurance adjuster or their doctor, please don't hesitate to give us a call. We'll talk you through as to what to expect in terms of the types of questions that you might be asked. You know, this reminds me of a claim I was reviewing um, a couple months back, John, where the the doctor from the insurance company clearly wanted to speak to one specialist over another and Hmm. that decision was made because it was clear that one specialist was more supportive of the disability claim than the other so of course the insurance company picked the lesser of the two and tried to influence the um the way that the conversation went around the opinion of whether or not this person could return to work so both specialists or doctors had opined that their patient couldn't return to work imminently and this doctor the insurance company's doctor was trying to persuade the conversation and you could see from what was recorded in the claims file that that persuasion was trying to happen and at the end of it i don't know if if the doctor was able to corner the the treating doctor in the way that they wanted to uh, but the insurance company assumed that that was what they achieved and on that basis used that to deny the claim so look you know i you know i come at it with a little bit of cynicism because i see the worst case scenarios okay and so i think it's important for our listeners to know you know this there's a goal right insurance companies have an objective these case managers are are trying to head to a point where they can justify closing a claim and they're not above tactics and one of those tactics could be to try and get their own doctor to influence or persuade your treating doctor that certain treatments or certain goals are more realistic than perhaps what was initially assessed and so look it's problematic uh, and you know we've got a whole host of issues coming out of that one that i'm describing but just as a general takeaway for someone like danica look you want to have transparency with the disability insurer on what's happening with your health and who's treating you and you also want to make sure that your doctors are aware that if they're dealing with the insurance company, use some care, use some kid gloves, be forewarned, uh, and make sure that something's documented on both sides as to what's happening with the disability claim following that phone call between herself, her doctor, and the insurance company's uh, treating provider. Yeah, I always find it interesting, especially when there's a, I know we got to take a break now, but it's always interesting when the insurance company starts to rely on the opinion of a doctor that may not have seen your client, uh, you know, maybe a paper file, but no physical, uh, physical interaction. I find that interesting. I don't know why it just seems like it doesn't hold any water. Absolutely, John. And it, and it doesn't. I mean, the courts have said they're going to prefer, you know, the, the disabled claimant's own treatment providers over anything that's written on paper by the insurance company's hired gun. Okay. And, and that's very, very clear. But while you're in the midst of it, like Danica is, that doesn't help you a whole heck of a lot, right? So you're in a situation where you've got to navigate your adjuster and your own doctor and potentially insurance company's doctor. And and when you're not really sure, this is why it's so helpful to kind of reach out. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, if they're not physically assessing Danica, and and I'm not sure whether she's got a physical health issue or a, a mental health issue or some combination of the two, but regardless, that is a key missing piece, which is why the courts have favored their own medical team over any sort of paper review, because yeah. you're actually being treated by the by your own doctor, seen by your own doctor, have regularity and trust with your own doctor. There's incredible value to that when you're advancing a disability claim against the insurer. 
1-855-821-5900, the number to reach out tomorrow when we're not doing the show, and email anytime, help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. All right. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. Tamara Gopian here, courtesy of Samfiru Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in this country. You'll want to reach out to Tamara. She's got a great team behind her as well. Help at disabilityrights.ca. The email address, the website for questions anytime, free, anonymous, mydisabilityquestions.com. And if you prefer to have a phone chat with Tamara or a member of her team, as mentioned, you can go to one 821 5900 Cost you nothing. Just pick up a phone and uh, and get some information. You know, we talk a lot on the show tomorrow about the importance of, of claimants documenting communications with their insurance adjusters. It doesn't have to be absolute verbatim, but have a pen and paper handy and take some uh, some reasonably good notes as you go along. Is, is is it any different when dealing with a treatment provider like their doctor or a therapist? What do you think? Yeah, that's a really good question, John. And I think, you know, of course, it reminds me of already what we talked about with Danica's email in our prior segment. But Mm -hmm. let's get into it a little more about what that means. And so, you know, yes, it's very, very important that things get documented when you're in the process of a disability claim. And why is that, you might ask? And and the bottom line really is, is that if things go south, if it's headed where the majority of disability claims are, which is the insurance company is going to cut you off, then you want to make sure you have your own paper trail of what's transpired through your disability claim. Incredibly important because the insurance company will take notes, but it's human nature. They're going to take notes in the way that they perceive that they communicated things to you. And so you want to make sure that you've got your own paper trail about, no, no, hang on. You didn't say this. You said this, or I didn't say this. I said this, right? So that kind of thing can be very, very helpful to have. But when you're dealing with your own treatment providers, I think that there's a general expectation that your own doctor, for example, is going to take the right notes or let's say you're going to physiotherapy or perhaps you're seeing a counselor. And you know, in both of those settings, there will be notes being taken throughout the treatment, for example. And there's an assumption, I think, that when you're seeing your own provider that those notes will be taken and that they are going to be comprehensive. But I find oftentimes that they're not necessarily, especially if you've got like a longtime family doctor, John, I find with those kinds of clients' profiles, the family doctor takes a lot for granted. And so, you know, they sort of see you every month, perhaps, or every two months, you know, I've got back pain, I've got back pain. And they stop writing the same comment every time because there's an assumption that it's still more of the same. And that could be the absence of information like that can be problematic because unfairly it gets assumed by the insurance adjuster or their lawyer, for example, in the context of a legal claim that, you know, the the doctor didn't write it down. So it must not have been an issue that time when you saw them. And that's not always the case. And so what I would encourage someone thinking about this is, look, you want to have a clearer sight line around what is being documented. And there can be some hesitation uh, from doctors in particular to provide you those notes, those records. Uh, But I think that you you know, if you give them the context, look, doctor, physiotherapist, psychotherapist, whoever it is that you're seeing, I'm in the middle of getting disability benefits. I, you know, or I've just been cut off and I've hired, you know, a lawyer, for example, to fight this claim for me. Please make sure that you're keeping comprehensive notes 
uh, of everything we are advising and the treatment and so on so that you know if i have to demonstrate total disability and these are the notes this these notes are the only things that i can demonstrate to show that i've got ongoing symptoms that are limiting me from working well then it becomes that much more important on the provider to ensure that they are comprehensive and they're they're fully recorded having said of course all of this though john you know it's not fatal so i don't want any listeners to think oh gosh you know my doctor writes two lines and i know every time i see him or her it's just two lines that's okay don't worry about that because if it does get to a point where you hire a disability lawyer and you're going down the path of challenging the insurer we can help getting the right type of information from your doctor we will coordinate with those doctors directly to get that information i just find that if you're in the middle of a, of a claim with the insurance adjuster you know you may not have that benefit at that moment and so you know let more you want more always more details are so so important and this is why I don't really like the forms, actually, that most disability insurers will send over to the doctor to complete, because uh, it's just so easy to check off boxes and not write enough words to explain what's happening with your patient's situation. And I get it. You know, I think it's just a tendency that doctors typically have. But, but this is why I think it's so, so important that if you're in the middle of a disability claim, you want to make sure that all of those details are contained somewhere in your medical information. How about if the doctor's records reference a claimant's consult with you or advice you've given them? Can that hurt their case against the insurance company? Well, I, I want to say no, but I don't know if that's actually the, the truth of it. In other words, I think that it can bring up a red flag. And so when a lawyer is referenced in any documentation that's being provided to the disability insurer, you know, it's it's a natural consequence that they get their backs up because they figure, OK, well, maybe we're, you know, not doing things right. Or maybe they know what we know, which is the writings on the wall and the claims coming to an end, for example. And I think that there is a, uh, a difficult notion that people feel, oh, I'm just going to lawyer up and that's going to mean that the insurance company is going to back off. No, no, it doesn't always work that way. And so I don't want to discourage individuals, though, to get the advice that they have a right to. I want to be able to provide, you know, as much consultation advice that I can uh, to help people navigate what can be a very stressful and difficult time, which is dealing with the disability insurer. But having said that, you know, you kind of want to have some caution around what exactly are you uh, telling your doctor about the consult and how much of that is actually being recorded. So, you know, as much as I say the details are important and focus on the health issues are important, you know, it's it can also be a detriment if it if the medical notes say, and, you know, uh, this lawyer said specifically that, you know, you need to tell me that I can't work. And so can you write that I can't work? Like stuff like that, John, not helpful, obviously not helpful because it sounds like it's being driven by the claimant as opposed to the medical advice uh, being the, the driver of why an individual may be off work. It may not be true, by the way. That may not actually have happened in that way. But if it's recorded in that way in the information being provided to the insurance adjuster, then they were going to draw the, the worst possible conclusion, which is that things are being interfered or influenced to lead to a point where there could be possibly a legal claim, which doesn't help the claimant when, when they're in the middle of receiving their benefits from the insurance company. Quick break and a couple more minutes to go. In the meantime, number one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred and help at disabilityrights.ca. This is the Disability Law Show. 
You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. Disability Law Show is what it is. Thank you so much for tuning in today and you want to reach out afterwards, one 855 821 5900. Tamara Gopian always doing the show, always giving clarity and answers. You can send her questions as well. Ask them actually on the phone anytime you want to use that number. Email help at disabilityrights.ca and a free and anonymous venue. Another place for you to go to to ask questions. It's called mydisabilityquestions.com. It's nice too because it's got a searchable database so you can see if a question similar to yours has been asked previously. It'll save you some time typing. If not, leave it there and the team will get to it. Again, mydisabilityquestions.com. Free, anonymous, so uh, so use it. Cal, you're up next. Thanks for uh, thanks for sending this along. Says I've been on LTD for almost two years and was approved for CPP disability earlier this year. Every three months, the insurer asks my doctors for new paperwork and just said to me at the end of the long phone call that they are reviewing my case again to decide if I'm covered over two years. If CPP disability has approved me for long-term, can the insured decide to cut me off? If they can and do, can I stay on CPP disability as my doctors still write that I can't work or does CPPD end automatically? I have no other income or spouse to help me. Thanks. Thanks, Cal. Thank you so much for that question. Yeah. So... Uh, the short answer is that one doesn't really have much to do with the other, except for the fact that the disability insurer gets credit for CPP disability. Okay. So let's get into the weeds because it really has to do with the tests to qualify. To qualify for CPP disability, you have to have a severe and prolonged disability, or at the very least, the government has to accept that you have a severe and prolonged disability. On the other hand, in order for long-term disability benefits to continue past that two-year mark, then you have to meet the test that says, generally speaking, the same for every disability policy. And it says, can you do any job, any occupation, anything in the world for which you've got the minimum requirements as in education and training in that, that will allow you effectively to earn give or take what you're getting as your disability benefit. So the insurance company is no longer going to be looking at, can we get you back to your own job? And can we get you back to your own job, working full time, earning your full earnings and so on. That's no longer the test from the disability insurer's perspective after that two year mark. So I suspect that's what's happening with Cal right now is that they're looking at updated medical information very very relevant up-to-date stuff so that's why they're asking every three months or so and they're having a long conversation with him about all of the different things that he's doing and not doing typical that's called a functional telephone interview and then the insurance company is going to render their decision on the change of definition so will they be influenced by the fact that cal is receiving cpp disability In theory, they should be, John, because in my mind, the test to qualify and obtain CPP disability, I think is actually higher. It's a tougher test to meet that you have a severe and prolonged disability. Just think of those words compared to, are you totally disabled from any occupation? But unfortunately, insurance companies don't often see it that way. 
they will tell you to apply for CPP disability because financially that helps the insurance company, right? So if you're getting $3,000 a month for LTD, now you start getting a thousand bucks from the government, insurance company is only going to pay you 2000. So think about that over hundreds and thousands of claimants. It's a great profit margin for the insurance yeah. company. So of course they're going to say, go ahead, go apply for CPP disability. But then they're going to take the fallback position that says, just because you're approved for CPP disability doesn't mean you're approved for long-term disability. It's frustrating when situations like that happen, but it does happen quite often. The good news is, though, that Cal can continue relying on the CPP disability regardless of what long-term disability might do. So CPP is totally separate, federal government, that benefit will continue usually they do very uh, periodic updates maybe once a year once every six months or so and those benefits will be released month over month um the way cpp works i'm told is that it's really like you let us know if things have changed kind of thing um as opposed to long-term disability which is look if we're going to release this monthly benefit we're going to want to know and justify in our file that we've got medical support to release this benefit which is why they do so much more vetting I find generally then what CPP does once you're actually approved for CPP disability benefits. And then I got to say to Cal, I mean, if the disability insurer is going to say no past the two-year mark and you're CPP approved, I got to say, please don't hesitate to assert your legal rights in the context of a legal claim. I mean, in my mind, it's a bit of a no-brainer, John, that if the insurance company denied in the face of CPP approval, that is really, really good leverage for a disability insurance lawyer to go back to the disability insurer and say, hang on, you guys messed up here. The test doesn't make sense. And Cal tells us like his doctors are so supporting that he can't work at all in any capacity. Well, I would think then in a scenario like that, he absolutely should be entitled to long-term disability past that two-year mark. Cal, appreciate that. You want to reach out further, you can do so. Uh, 1-855-821-5900. Can retirement or accessing a pension impact a person's disability benefits? Good question, John. Yes, it can, but not in the way that you think. And so people will say, look, I'm going to retire. You know, I'm going to get my LTD benefits. And then once that ends, I'm just going to retire. Well, you got to be careful around that because some policies will say that you're not entitled to long-term disability benefits once you retire. And so you want to understand what does your disability policy actually say about the end of payments. Most say it's to age 65, but some actually say if you access, for example, a full pension and you can access that pension at age 60 or 62, for example, Some disability policies will say, okay, well, then you're not entitled to LTD past the point where you're entitled to a full pension. So it can be a little bit technical. Uh, Bottom line, you want to get a copy of that policy as to what it says, and then you want to make some decisions around that. Because at the end of the day, your entitlement to long-term disability should actually not matter whether you retire or not, in my view. One has very little to do with the other, if you ask me. Mm. If there is medical support that you can't work, even if you consider yourself retired, that's not really retirement. That's because you're on disability and should be continuing to get the LTD benefit. So the nomenclature, the words that you use in a situation like that can be important and can have an impact on whether or not your long-term disability benefits continue. So be informed, get the advice that you need, and then you can make some choices on whether or not to in fact access a pension or consider yourself retired officially with your employer, for example, 
before you know your LTD benefits end so that you know you're going into it with an informed decision. And with that, we are just about complete. Thank you so much for uh, for tuning in and all your uh, your correspondence with the show each week. Here's how you continue to do that, even though we're going off air now. It's uh, the phone number, one 821 5900 email help at disabilityrights.ca and free and anonymous uh, way for you to ask questions. That would be mydisabilityquestions.com. And we'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto.